My name is Jonathan Shackleton, an Irish cousin of Sir Anna Shackleton, who himself was born in County Kildare in 1874. Sir Anna Shackleton is probably Ireland's best-known explorer, celebrated internationally for his expeditions to Antarctica, and especially for his heroic feats of survival after his ship, the Endurance, became trapped in the ice. His ensuing journey to save his men has been chronicled in books, films and theatre. Now, during the COVID-19 pandemic, we all find ourselves asked to endure. In our case, to endure isolation, boredom and anxiety while we try to stop the spread of this virus and protect the health of ourselves and everyone else. In 1914, just before his endurance expedition, Shackleton wrote about what he felt were four qualities needed as a polar explorer, which he also felt were necessary for every person to go through this world successfully. He put these in the order he felt were most essential. These were, first, optimism, second, patience, third, idealism, fourth, courage. We can learn from Shackleton that these qualities can help us through the next few weeks and months. So we have highlighted and discussed them for you in this short podcast series. We hope you enjoy it. And if we've piqued your interest in Shackleton or polar exploration, then consider joining us at the next Shackleton Autumn School in Ireland at Athai, County Kildare. January 7th, a blinding, shrieking blizzard all day, with the temperature ranging from 60 to 70 degrees of frost. It has been impossible to leave the tent, which is snowed up on the lee side. We have been lying in our bags all day, only warm at food time, with fine snow making its way through the walls of the worn tent and covering our bags. We are eating our valuable food without marching. The wind has been blowing 80 to 90 miles an hour. We can hardly sleep. Tomorrow, I trust this will be over. Directly the wind drops, we march as far south as possible, then plant the flag and turn homeward. Our chief anxiety is lest our tracks may drift up for to them we must trust mainly to find our depot. We have no land bearings in this great plain of snow. It is a serious business that we have taken, but we had to play the game to the utmost, and Providence will look after us. This episode focuses on the Nimrod, which was a privately funded expedition in which Shackleton attempted to be the first person to reach the South Pole. The attempt began in 1908, and by January of 1909 they had to turn back. As the Dublin Evening Herald put it, South Pole almost reached by an Irishman. Or as my father would say, close, but no cigar. Can you tell me your name and how you became interested in Shackleton? Okay, my name's Jim McAdam. I'm an agricultural scientist and I was always interested in islands. And in 1976, I went to the Falkland Islands for three years. It was my first serious job after leaving Queen's University. 
Uh, I was part of a small three-person team who was setting up an agricultural research station in the islands. And I lived there for three years and I really enjoyed it. The Falklands were also the gateway to the British interest in the Antarctic, of course. So there were a lot of uh, British Antarctic survey personnel going through the Falklands. When I came back from the Falklands then and started at, in Queen's University in, and in the Department of Agriculture, there, there were a group of people there called the Polar Club, I think we were called, who started doing a series of talks around Northern Ireland, just interesting people in Irish interests in the Antarctic and Irish polar explorers. I knew from my time being in the Falklands about Shackleton and Tom Crean and people, but then I started to get more seriously interested and then gradually over the years that built up. The reading at the opening of this episode is actually from uh, the Nimrod expedition. Can you just set the scene for us? What was the Nimrod expedition? Shackleton, who had been on Scott's earlier discovery expedition, which of course hadn't hadn't reached the South Pole, but had got further south. And Shackleton had had he'd had a rough time that expedition, but he was still a, he was an explorer and he wanted to uh, achieve some of some of the last great uh, you know untold places to get to, and he still was very keen to get to the South Pole. It was a remarkable expedition in that, of course, no one had been that far into the Antarctic continent. They, they had on discovery found out how to try and cross the ice and, and how to mount uh, expeditions like this. So Shackleton and three colleagues set off in um, late November 1908 and uh, eventually got to within less than 100 miles from the South Pole. But they went through terrible hardship. Uh, they were learning all the time in terms of uh, we, we know of course from the type of gear they had the food they had was nothing like the standard of today so that they were by about within about 100 miles from the south pole uh, they were really pretty much on their last mm-hmm. legs they could have gone on of course and got to the pole but Shackleton and the, the four of them realized they wouldn't actually make it back if they did that so he made the uh, then, what I think was courageous, you could argue it was a no-brainer of a decision to turn back, uh, and Shackleton left, put his flag up within 97 miles of the South Pole. At that time, was the closest anyone had ever been to the South Pole. So the Nimrod expedition, uh, uh, he, he was after he came back, Shackleton was very famous. That put him really on the, the, the map of one of the great explorers. Amundsen recognised him. He was knighted. Uh, and um, so from that point of view, it, it was a success in that it put Shackleton's name up there as an explorer. But he must have seen it in some ways as a failure and he didn't actually reach the South Pole. But it was nonetheless one of the, the great polar explorations of all time. The, the expedition itself, what were the stages of that expedition once they'd actually reached kind of the Southern Oceans? What, did they stop off at, which, which were their stopping off points um, before they actually reached the Antarctic continent? Well, they left from uh, New Zealand. So they, they went from Britain, the ship was, went from Britain to, to New Zealand. And um, there, uh, then Shackleton went out separately to meet meet up with me because he, he had to sort out a lot of... The, the, the expedition was always in trouble financially and Shackleton had a lot of debts over it. 
uh, and he tried to sort a lot of that out before he left. They left, they left finally from New Zealand and uh, then down to the Antarctica, they got towed part of the way because the ship was so overladen. Uh, they they were towed a good way down to the Antarctic. Then they, they got there in time to set up huts uh, and overwinter in the Antarctic, which is what these expeditions did because you had to then make the best use of the short Antarctic summer. So they needed to be ready to go in the spring. So they built a hut essentially and stayed there. And then then the next stage in, in late 1908 was to set off across towards the South Pole. Can you give us a sense of what that expedition across land looked like? Well, it's, it's essentially a case of setting up depot. It was all based on setting food depots along the way. Um, Shackleton, uh, 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 along with Scott, didn't make as much use of dogs uh, as some of the other polar explorers. For example, a lot of Amundsen's uh, great successes, uh, he attributes to the fact that he dogs, he used dogs. Th- those British expeditions really relied on man-hauling. Um, so th- the expedition was really about setting a series of depots, which a large number of men would be used to set, set those up. And then gradually you would whittle down with the number of men who would go forward to, to make sort of the final pushes of the expedition. And then uh, for the last push to the pole, there were just four of them went on to try and make the final push. They had to rely on what was left to at the depots. These food depots, of course, were to sustain them on the way back. Uh, so the, they were using up food as they went out. It took a lot of planning and calculation. Um, and... Uh, but they, they they went into they ran into bad weather. They had ill health. Obviously, their their nutrition. They weren't getting enough calories to keep them going really. Uh, and really, uh, they were struggling and struggling near the end. And uh, Shackleton, although if you look at his diaries up to I think it's about a fortnight before uh, they reached the point where they turned back, he was still confident that they could make it. Uh, and he they, they the four of them did in their tent and talk realistically about what they could do but uh, but he was still confident that he could make it to the pole but as time went on I think it's clear their health was failing them uh, they knew their food supplies were running out and uh, they finally had to make the decision to turn back. So we've heard Shackleton's diary entry there and he ends on rather a grim note you know this anxiety about not being able to find their way to the depot um, and this kind of calculation of risk. What's uh, what's a risk that's worth taking and one and what's one that is maybe too far of a risk, um, which is very much in some senses what the Nimrod story is about. Can you explain that anxiety about not finding the depots? Yeah, the, these depots were the lifeline. Uh, you know, they were they were set so many miles apart so, so there'd be enough food for them each way. But you, ima- you imagine they're just really walking over an absolutely featureless plain. And none of the journeys do we do. Maybe if you're a sailor and if you're out at sea and uh, all around you, there's just simply sea. Uh, so you don't really know what direction you're in or where, where you're going. Um, and it, it's a bit like that. It was a bit like that in the Antarctic. There was just a completely flat white horizon. And they were relying on these depots with a lifeline. And they were going forward towards the South Pole. Navigation is difficult because your compass, of course, is not, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're getting the part of the world where it 
to go in the right direction it, it, it is, it's difficult enough. So they were relying on the, the tracks they'd left from their sledge to, to get back because they knew uh, that they would be weaker and they wouldn't want to run any risk of losing direction or having to navigate again. So he mentions that particularly in his entry. You know, he says, um, our chief anxiety is lest our tracks may drift up or to them we must trust mainly to find our depot. It's interesting to me that you picked the Nimrod to talk about in terms of courage, um, because of course it's a very courageous uh, idea, the expedition, but that isn't really what you wanted to focus on. You wanted to focus on the decision to turn back, not the decision to to go for the pole, but the decision to turn back. Can you explain how you see that as courageous? Whenever we talked about this, the idea of um, having a theme, using the theme of courage, and I thought of the courage of making decisions, particularly when we come to think about how that relates to the situation we're in today. Uh, decisions do take courage, uh, and but deci- <clears throat> decisions are very important. I think of a, a maxim my own fa- late father often told me was, he was involved quite high level in business. He ran his own successful business. But he said to me, the one thing he always found in life was quickly make a decision because until people make decisions, nothing happens. Thinking back of how Shackleton, his greatest goal in life was to get to the South Pole. I mean, it would have been the abs. It was the greatest achievement any polar explorer could make. Yet he must have been slowly realizing that when they got to within 100 miles of it, that uh, he wasn't, they they weren't going to make it. Well, they could have gone on and made it, but the likelihood of them dying, all dying, was extremely high. So he made the decision, which I think must have been a courageous one, because it must have affected him right to his core about all that his targets and dreams and goals in life were. He had to turn back just so near to it. I mean, it's he says about looking on ahead and the, all over the flat horizon to see if they could see anything, but there was nothing. And uh, so they reluctantly turned, uh, they shot their bolt, as he said, and they, they decided to turn around and go back. And there were a lot of other decisions Shackland had to make. You've talked about the endurance expedition and previous ones where he had to make some momentous decisions there, which took a lot of courage uh, and showed great leadership, as I think leadership bound with courage in a lot of the scenarios that Shackleton faced. And I believe that after the expedition failed, Shackleton wrote to his wife, and we get a very clear picture from that of the depth of his disappointment. Uh, that's right. And um, he said he, he probably makes light of it just by saying the famous quote, you know, would you rather have a, a live donkey or a dead lion? Uh, but that probably belies a lot of the disappointment he did feel. Uh, and uh, But still, it showed that he had the courage to do what he did and, and to, to bring his men home safely. I think there's also another interesting aspect of courage that you might have something to say on. It strikes me that courage is very definitely different from recklessness, right? So courage to me involves preparation and calculation of risks. Does that, do you think, relate to the Nimrod expedition? Yeah, very much so. And, and I mean, Shackleton, although he was called the boss in that uh, people did respect him and did follow him, but um, he was also very cautious. And, and you know, he, he was also nicknamed Old Cautious too. Uh, he wasn't reckless and think, and 
he surrounded himself with uh, a small group of men that he trusted, uh, and that comes through in all his expeditions. And in this one, particularly, he uh, Frank Wilde and um, Adams, he, who he, he was, he, he trusted him greatly. Uh, then uh, we had um, in the endurance, of course, you had Worsley and Wilde and Crean. These were people that I'm sure he he chatted over things at a very deep level from from his soul, uh, and then he came up with his decision. So he, it, his courage wasn't his decision making wasn't reckless. And like you say, it takes courage to be able to listen to other people and take their views on board. Uh, and I think that's another aspect of of Shackleton's courage, which comes through. Could you extend that a little bit to how you think that might apply to the current pandemic situation? Yeah, I think that's quite relevant. I mean, we have people in in high, uh, uh, you, you know, we, we have people in high political command, people in high medical command, who are having to make really fundamental life changing saving and losing decisions uh, at the minute. And it's interesting just looking at how some of them do it. Um, medic, senior medical people will rely, hopefully, on have a group of uh, experts under them who they listen to, and they, in turn, then will talk to the politicians. But I, I think um, there's never really more been a situation where people have to listen to the science. And I find it very interesting to compare this with the climate crisis that over the last couple of years in Ireland particularly too the whole issue of climate change ha has risen to the top of the agenda but it's been quite controversial and there's been a lot of opinions in it uh, and people have not listened to the science the, the science that's behind it whereas in this pandemic I think there's a lot more uh, um, there's a lot more evidence that people are willing to listen to the scientists and listen to the experts and use that to base their decisions. So I find the, you know, that the the speed of action in a way, the climate crisis is one of the, is the greatest challenge we face in the long term. Um, yet there's been this reluctance to listen to scientists, whereas with this COVID crisis, people have listened to the scientists and uh, it's sort of evidenced in the decisions they've made. Can I ask you about the courage in particular of healthcare workers and how we might maybe compare that to the courage of people in either of these expeditions to the Antarctic? It strikes me that just as you've been saying, you know, courage is supported by science in, in the case of handling this pandemic and in the parallel of the climate. So in terms of the healthcare environment, if courage is supported by science, Science says that healthcare workers, to minimize risks to themselves and to patients, need to have proper protective equipment. They need to have proper protocols. And so in some ways, if we're asking those people to be courageous, we need to also accept, um, you know, whatever we can do to help them to take calculated risks and not have to be reckless in their jobs. Yeah, I think you're very right because to take that down to that level, the real courage, okay, we talked about those decisions at high level, but it's the people that are implementing those are showing the real courage, the health workers that go into their job every day, knowing the risks that they, they, they have to take and um, maybe not feeling they have an adequate gear, adequate protection, 
you can see the analogy with what happened to those polar explorers. Okay, you had the leaders, the Shackletons, the Scots, the Amundsen, but they had the men who trudged along beside them, who followed in their wake, who might have felt that, you know, we're not warm enough, we don't have an adequate food or supplies for this expedition. Yet they just courageously trudged on because they knew they were all in it together, we're all in the same boat. Day-to-day courage, which really singles out a lot of the health workers in this crisis who just go and do their job uh, and uh, uh, get it done and take the risk on the behalf of all of us. January 9th, our last day outwards. We have shot our bolt and the tale is latitude 88 degrees, 23 minutes south, longitude 162 degrees east. The wind eased down at 1am, and at 4am we started south. At 9am we were in 88 degrees 23 minutes south, half running and half walking over a surface much hardened by the recent blizzard. It was strange for us to go along without the nightmare of a sledge dragging behind us. We hoisted Her Majesty's flag and took possession of the plateau in the name of His Majesty. We looked south with our powerful glasses but could see nothing but the dead white snow plain. There was no break in the plateau as it extended towards the pole and we feel sure that the goal we have failed to reach lies on this plain. We stayed only a few minutes and then, taking the Queen's flag and eating our scanty meal as we went, we hurried back and reached our camp about 3pm. We were so dead tired that we only did two hours' march in the afternoon and camped at 5.30pm. The temperature was minus 19 degrees Fahrenheit. Fortunately for us, our tracks were not obliterated by the blizzard. Indeed, they stood up, making a trail easily followed. Homeward bound at last. Whatever regrets may be, we have done our best. Thank you for listening to this episode of What Would Shackleton Do? My name is Juliana Edelman. I'm a historian at Dublin City University. I'd like to thank Jonathan Shackleton, who's an Irish-born family historian and Antarctic expert with many other interests, including natural history and forestry. Our guest this week was Jim McAdam, who's editor of the Falkland Islands Journal and a professor at Queen's University in Belfast. John Carty read the extracts from Shackleton's Heart of the Antarctic, and he's an actor and founding member of the Blue Raincoat Theatre Company, based in Sligo. Our music is from Shackleton's Endurance, commissioned by the Shackleton Museum in 2014 on the centenary of the Endurance Expedition. The music is by Brian Hughes, and the narrative, which you haven't heard, is by John McKenna. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow us on Twitter, at Athai Heritage, or at Edelman Juliana, for updates about future episodes of the podcast, And you can find more information about Shackleton and the Autumn School at shackletonmuseum.com.